City Jazz Sessions is about great music, arts, and entertainment. We are located in St. Louis, Missouri, and available to performance art lovers worldwide. Follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. You can email us at cityjazzsessions at gmail.com. You're on. All right. How's it going, everybody? Good to talk to you, Bill. Leon, are you on with me? I am here. <laughs> All right. Well, today we have a very special guest. Um, this actually marks, I'm, I'm reading, the 64th year of his professional career, um, coming from a generation a fourth generation of a family who has played music of all styles moved to new york city uh, was a part-time student at juilliard uh, then left to go to the army was drafted and in the army band in fairbanks alaska also our guest for today has played with the george benson quartet isaac hayes ruth brown bobby short Roland Hannah. I mean, the list goes on and on today. I am so, so excited to introduce everybody to Bill Easley. Say hi, Bill. Thank Hello. you for coming. Hello, Candace. <laughs> I haven't seen you since you were a little girl. How you blossomed into a grown-up. <laughs> Good to see you. And we have Leon over here as well. <laughs> so I guess we should what do you want to talk about today, Bill? We have a lot of extensive history that we could go into. Um, let's start with what you've been up to. As of late, I haven't been up to a whole lot. I'm, I've been working for many, as you said, 60 some years. So oh I am goodness. now at 77 years old and most of the people that I've worked with are no longer on the planet. I'm, I'm living in a new a city that I've lived in for a while and really have, haven't really become a part of the community, which is okay because sometimes some past, present, and future all exist simultaneously. So when I'm, I can always go back to a former moment or project a future moment. Mm -hmm. No, but I, I don't do a whole lot. I, I went to Detroit last week. I'm oh, in January. I, th I did about four days at the blue, uh, at the Birdland in 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 uh, New York. I've I've been to the. I don't North do a whole lot. Huh? <laughs> I don't do a whole lot. I spent no, four no, days no, at Birdland. Really, like, no, I'm serious, but not like <laughs> I used to be busy every day, all day for many, many, many years. I was in New York, I moved well in Memphis and in, in New York, I was always, my goal as a child, I never had any aspirations for stardom or anything or being, but my, my goal, because as you said, I'm a fourth generation. So my goal has always been to this day to be a working musician understand in other words Thank to be working and that's what i've managed to do for many 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 years so so let's segue with that um talking about um you being a fourth generation musician in your family 
tell us a little bit about how do you create four generations of musical excellence? Tell me about your parents and how, how that whole thing evolved. Okay. You guys have a really rich history. My, my, okay, let's go with my mother and father. My mother and father had a band together from 1928. My father was on the road with a five piece band and they kept back in those days, you travel all over. So they ended up in my, had it for a, a, a gig in my hometown called Olean, New York. And the oh, saxophone player in the band at that time was a man named Turntine, who happened to be Stanley Turntine's father. So oh. Stanley, uh, Mr. Turntine had a family emergency to where he had to go back to Pittsburgh. So they needed, they had a hired a local saxophone player, which was my uncle. His name was Dar Barnes. And so that's where my mother and father, uh, he, my, they met in 1928 and my mother was a piano player. And so they had a band together from the late twenties and I joined their band in 1959. So, and then her mother was graduate, went to a music conservatory in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And, and mm -hmm. her father was like a bandmaster and played all of the instruments and his, his son. So I'm a fourth generation musician, third generation saxophonist. So oh wow! Sort of the family history, but I joined my. I started working in my parents' band when I was thirteen years old. We played country clubs and dances and clubs and all kind of, you know, mostly weekend by that time. But I was, I was, I bought my first clarinet, and my father signed for a note for me, and mm -hmm. the clarinet was three hundred and thirty dollars, and my payments were twelve dollars and twenty five cents a month. So I had to at least get one gig a month to pay my bills. You see, so. <laughs> right? So is that where your sister started performing as well? Because she is also a recorded right. artist. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my, my old my youngest sister was a very very. In fact, my oldest sister was actually a world of a classical singer, an opera singer. Okay. And she, my older sister, she's, uh, I mean, really, really gifted. I can still hear her voice. She's been gone a long time, but I'm talking about one of the greatest uh, classical voices that I've heard, heard, ever heard. And I've, over the years, I've worked with Jesse Norman. I've, I've worked with a whole lot of variety of people, wow. but my my oldest sister had a voice like again you it's i can still hear it you see so and then my youngest sister was more contemporary and she she was in new york before i moved to new york i don't think i would have gone to new york had my uh sister she was 9 years older than me so she was in new york so to, so to, to go from a little small town to go right to New York, you know, was kind of a big step. But I don't think I would have done it had my sister not been there before. And I adjusted to New York just like that. Within months, I was I was a working musician. And you moved there in in sixty four. Sixty four, September of sixty four. And you got to keep in mind that all the riots and things that had gone on that summer. And I moved right to Harlem from this little town upstate. I was like Gomer Piles. 
and I pulled up into to on about September 19th of 1960 and I got there late at night and I'm staying at the Harlem Y and when we get there there's some cats sitting down on the stoop passing wine in a bottle and I said oh my goodness what am I doing you understand because I'd never been to New York before and so and so the, the, the voice in my head, which I have a voice in my head that speaks to me continuously throughout life, but I was I was petrified, and, <laughs> and, and and the voice in my head I couldn't sleep, and the voice in my head said, "Make the adjustment." As clear as a bell, I could I can testify of dozens of times where the voice in my head has said certain things, and that pretty much straight ahead from the but make the adjustment uh, i i became a new yorker within two or three days you understand <laughs> right it had to be done it's yeah. like make it or perish <laughs> so i, I okay, have a quick so question i was going to ask if you had questions yeah Leon. i have a quick question so what what was it like um being in a, a family where the parent, your parents traveled a lot and and played music. Oh, they didn't travel a lot. We worked. We worked mainly. See, you got to realize back in every local town, you had what what you call territory bands, to where you lived in a certain location, and your gigs would be maybe thirty miles, forty miles, fifty miles away. So you you would mm -hmm. go you would go to the gig and then you'd come home after the gig. It wasn't that they weren't but back in the day my father was on the road with bands, you know, mm -hmm. what he called uh, uh co-op bands. And they mm -hmm. and, and they traveled and you know, it's a whole nother world and what especially in terms of dollars and cents, what musicians you know what the average working person made in those days mm -hmm. what what's changed our society more so than anything is the is the cost of the value of a dollar i mean mm -hmm. i could go back to my earth being on the road with in in the in the late 60s to where i was making 150 dollars a week and that's before hotel bills and taxes but that you could live comfortably you understand? Because a day job, I, I, when I first went to New York, I had a job in a bank five days a week, eight, 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 eight hours a day. And my salary was 60, $62 a week. But my first gig on the road was $125 a week. You understand? So a musician's salary compared to the average person was much, much higher mm -hmm. That, and today, the musicians probably make it the same as they were in 1964, you see. So that's that's a problem. So how did you get to um, Juilliard from there? What, I, when I went to, I, in other words, when I left home, naturally, you're supposed, I went, I signed up to go to school at the extension division of Juilliard. And so that that was really supposedly my idea, my reason for going to New York. But I, I only went part time. And mm -hmm. in the meantime, I'm out in the street hanging out and hanging with the cats and playing. And <laughs> in no time I was working. Most of the places that I've got, lived, including Fairbanks, as soon as I got there, I pretty much went to work right away. Just like when I got to Memphis, Tennessee in 1971, October, I got to Memphis, Tennessee. I didn't know one soul in that town and I had $20 in my pocket. 
that was a Tuesday. By Friday night, I was working seven nights a week, you see. So wow. that's been the that's been the trend in my life, divine intervention. And of course, a gig gonna find me, you understand? <laughs> that's how it should go, you know. <laughs> so from there, you were in Juilliard, you did the military band, and then how did you meet George Benson? Because that okay. would be the next transition okay. for me. I mean, I'll, tr I'll try to keep my condensed because everything <laughs> is about divine intervention. You understand? Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't mean to sound corny, but that's how life works. When I was in the Army, one time I went on leave, and Miles was working in Seattle. And that's with Herbie and Wayne and Tony, et cetera. So I'm, mm -hmm. by this time, I'm 19 years old. And I'd already been to New York, but I figured, boy, I mean, when I get out of the army, I'm going to be an old man. I'm going to be 21 years old. So I better figure out what I'm going to do when I get back out of the army. So I go to see Miles with Herbie and all of that, a club called the Penthouse in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And my, my, initial plan was I was going to go see Miles and when when they took a break I was going to go up to Miles and I was going to say hello Miles my name is Bill Easley and I play saxophone and Miles would probably say oh really and why don't you go get your horn <laughs> well, that was the plan <laughs> so, so when, when I go and I got my army I got my army and when they hit it was like some people coming from another planet i hadn't heard anything like that in my life you have this 1966 you see so and i'd heard records and things but when you see that band live it's an out-of-body experience you see so the idea, I stood, I got up from my chair and I stood up in front of the band and watched the whole first set. Wow. And so by the time they finished, I, I didn't even know my name. And the voice in my head, again, the voice in my head said, you need to go back to your hotel and hide under the bed. I'm, I'm not, you know, word for word, <laughs> that's what I said. So now I'm trying to get out of the club, but I can't, I had left my army hat in the seat where I was sitting. So I'm looking all around and people oh, wow. trying to change audiences and I'm trying to get, but I can't find my army hat. And all of a sudden I feel these piercing eyes and at, at the end of Miles's outstretched hand is my army hat. And Miles says, is this what you're looking for? And I grabbed my hand and I ran out of the club. You understand? I ran out. I didn't tell Miles my name because I didn't know my name. And so it was a very devastating experience. And so when I got back to the army base, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll become a chiropractor or a, a lumber or something. This music thing may not be for me. And so it was a very a defining moment. Okay. And at some point within a couple days, the voice in my head said, you got to get with a giant. You got to get with a giant. Clear as a bell. So I got out of the army in November. By okay. January, I'm out on the road with George Benson. You understand? And George was a giant. I spoke to him the other about two, three days ago. 
And I've, I've told him, which I've told him many times over the years, I say, you know what, that was the greatest, I've been working 60 some years, that was the most productive and, you know, most exciting period. Of, I'm talking about including 10 Broadway shows, Isaac Hayes, you know, I've been around the block, but I can unequivocally say that those two years with George back, because we're playing clubs and and you got to realize that I'm so old. I remember when black people like jazz, you understand? <laughs> so they were playing <laughs> and, and they, it was a whole different vibe than, you know, things change. Right. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you was, you know, as far as like all of the names, I mean, you, we could rattle off names of you all day long and, you know, you've played with them and you've had profound musical experiences. So I wondered who you felt that way about it. I didn't know it would be um, George Benson. Well, yeah, um, in terms of a steady gig, you understand? Because that, mm -hmm. as I said, and I, I, I probably shouldn't even talk about dollars and cents, you know, because, you know, George eventually made a whole lot more money. But back in those days, his whole band was booking for $950 a week, you see. And we mm -hmm. traveled in, in the uh, van, you know, carrying the organ. And over the years, I think I can probably safely say that I probably worked with more of the great, because the black clubs back in those days, the organ circuit, Lou Donaldson, that, that organ right. circuit was the thing, especially in the black community. And mm -hmm. so over the years, so I caught a lot of that and I worked with every organ player that you can think of, including Jimmy Smith, Jimmy McGriff. You, uh, uh, the only two organ players that I didn't work with or record with would be Shirley Scott and mm -hmm. uh, uh, one other, uh, uh, Larry Young. But mm -hmm. I, every other organ player, uh, major or even some lesser known organ players over over that period of time I worked and so I've been in Harlem or all over the you know in New York or, when I got to Memphis right away I was with an organ group you see so I was gonna ask you because when I heard I listened to Diversitonic today am I pronouncing that correct because I can Diversitonic Diversitonic I want to get it right you know I don't want to I made up the word. You understand? I made, I invented a word, and the meaning. I'm good at that too, so I wanted to make sure I'm I'm not, you know, you know, mangling someone else's in, invented word because it's happened to me. It is quite diversity. See, we're living in strange times, but the truth of the matter. Diversity is a fact of life. In other words, we got not only in terms of racially, but everybody on the planet is different. You understand? And human, human behavior, everybody seems to want everybody to be just like them. But no, that's not the case. And everybody is different. So diversity is a fact of life. And music is often a tonic that brings people together, you see? So, okay. so I made up the word, and if you Google the word, I come up, you understand? I um, packing. All right, then. Jazz. You don't have to say CD. You don't have to say music. It's just a word. All right. A rebel. In, in the beginning was the note, and then came the word, so we could all disagree, you see? so A maverick right here. So on that record, I was listening. I really... I got some great, some tunes I really love on there. But one thing I noticed is that you had 
the organ sound. You had you had organ and piano, and that has become and it was just so so smooth and just such a, a a really different approach to organ and having piano at the same time. And that's been a feature of that particular album. So how did you song select for that album? And I absolutely love the piano player. Who is playing piano? Who is playing on this? Who's the person? Okay. Well, the truth of the matter, all that, you got to realize all that's going on through the pandemic. And I'll go to the plans for that record and everything. We got a pandemic and first, and I'm living in a new town. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to make a record, but I wanted to be honest about it and present myself in in my current environment. And so, mm -hmm. and I don't even know any of the local music. I didn't really know who's who in this town, but I got, and then I, so, but in terms of the wow. organ, in terms of the organ, the guy that was originally going to play organ, he, he backed out on me at the last minute. So I had to bring in uh, a great, great friend of mine, Kyle Kohler, who is originally from Philadelphia, which is really the home, Jimmy Smith, Jimmy McGriff, uh, the, 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 Philadelphia is mm -hmm. the town which breeds organ players. And, and like I say, as Jimmy Smith, McGriff, I can, uh, uh, played with Sonny, uh, I, I'm having, uh, anyway, there's so many, I don't know. Uh, Many, many, Philadelphia is known mm. as organ player. So this right. guy's the tail end, Joey DeFrancesco. Kyle mm. Kohler is from the Philadelphia School of Organ. And we've been friends for years and years. And years. So I flew him in from New York. And I'm glad I did because you had to have, when I, when I look back, that uh, Kyle saved me, you understand, in, other, in terms of bringing... Uh, uh, an element that I wouldn't have had, you know, had I not brought him in. Plus, I, you know, I was able to create some work for some people during the pandemic, you know, so, and it, you know, it, it kept me busy and, and, you know, it's, it's easy at this point in my life. Uh, most of my mentors or most people didn't get to be 70, 77, you see. My one of my greatest mentors, Sonny Stitt. In other words, uh, Sonny Stitt, we were great, great, great friends, but Sonny Stitt left the planet when he was 58 years old. And if you look at the age of, of Coleman Hawkins, if you look at Lester Young, if you look at most people, most most of the Giants didn't, Charlie Parker was dead when he's 34, you understand? So most people don't get the longevity that I've had, so it'd be easy for me to just call, and I am going to call, I'm going to pretty much, at 80, I'm telling myself, now all my horns are for sale. But for the next two years, my plan is to get in my car and drive to anywhere that I can play. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> there was so much to unpack in that, and honestly, it was all great information. So I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, oh, yeah. We were, you know, I didn't want to interrupt you because that's you such a great, you a great fact. <laughs> Leon, do you have any questions? If not, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into a different uh, segment. But do you have anything? No, go right ahead. Go right ahead. I'm in, I'm just enjoying okay. listening to him talk. It's wonderful, right? <laughs> so basically, you did 
two years with George, then you moved to Memphis. And from there, things kind of blossomed. You were working with Isaac Hayes and, and how did were Ruth Brown, how did Ruth Brown come up? This is definitely, I've been listening to a lot of Ruth Brown. How did that divine intervention happen? That that's that's later. You you, you can't you skip it over. You, you, Memphis, okay. Memphis was a whole period of almost ten years. You understand? Okay. I'm ten looking years. here. So as I said, when I got to Memphis, I didn't know one soul in that town, mm-hmm. and I ran into. Uh, I went. I picked out. I, I had twenty dollars, and I picked out. I asked around where some cats playing, and so on and so. So I picked out okay. one club to go to, and it was on in in Midtown. And when I walked in the club, the drummer that happened to be back in Memphis at that time was Joe Dukes, who mm-hmm. I knew from. You know, he was with Jack McDuff for many many years, and he was from Memphis, but. But but he and every once in a while, certain cats would go back home to get away from certain things and they'd go back home. And so Joe just happened to be back in Memphis at that time. So I sent a note to him and and so far. But the end of the night, you know, finally, they let me sit in and somebody sitting there. Oh, man, you just come to town and blah, blah, blah. And I want you to work with me next weekend and blah, blah, blah. And we go and I buy by, by, that's Tuesday by Thursday. All my I'm hungry. And so the guy has, <laughs> has a rehearsal. And luckily he gave me a $15 draw so I could get something to eat. But then we started work. Then he took me downtown after the rehearsal. He took me downtown and Herman Green was playing downtown. And, mm-hmm. and, and there was a, a guy named Lee Stone. I don't know if you remember Lee, but he had a band, mm-hmm. Noble Parks. All of these are Memphis, okay. Walter Reed. So I walk in the club with my horns, you know. And so Memphis put its arms around me the first night. In other words, I walk in, this guy sees me with the horns. He said, hey, you want some of this, brother? You know, so I take out my horn. New cat in town, you know. Man, I want you to work with me. I said, well, this cat just hired me to work Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. He's okay, you work with me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know what I mean? Now, ten dollars a night. I want to see this type of aggressive work coming at me when I walk in with my horns. Again, I have. There's no. It, it has to do with divine intervention. You understand? When you bring, when you, you know, but you have. But again, you have. You have something to do with it. You understand the way that you carry yourself or whatever, but. And that, like I say, I, I literally, I got a, I got a room at the, at the Y downtown was thirteen dollars for the week, so I only had seven dollars left. You see, and so that was, <laughs> I survived that way for oh, at least a year and a half. You understand? Wow. And then I get the gig uh, all of a sudden with Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes was hot as a firecracker. You understand? So at mm-hmm. some point, I don't know, Anzi Horn. Again, there's so many, so many details and so many very important names and things that I could mention that are, Anzi Horn was just, uh, he was a, a musical director and a great arranger. He, he got out of the music. He made, he made his, uh, you know, and he, 
did very well. He had a club, but Anzi Horn was was Isaac's conductor, and he had been with 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 Lionel way back when Quincy was a kid. You know, in fact, if you mention Anzi Horn to Quincy Jones, I'm sure his eyes would light up. You see. So anyway, but I got the gig with Isaac, and and at that time. We were, I'd never made, the most money I'd made in my life at that time was $150 a week. We were making more than that a night, you understand? So when the road manager gave me my first check, I said, man, this must be a mistake, man. This must be Isaac's check, you understand? They laughed at me for you. Literally, I said, what? All this for me? You understand? That was, and if you've been a have not, your whole life, once you, once, you, once you become a have, you don't ever want to go back. It's to not it. going back at that point. You know what I have? I haven't gone back. <laughs> so, so divine intervention and and pursuit of paying gigs has been literally the road. It's like. <laughs> Where, how can I get paid? How can I work? And how can That's I play okay. the music okay. that I really want to play? Every, everything I say is a quote of somebody else. Here's, here's a drummer friend of mine, Randy Gillespie. If it's paying, I'm playing. You understand? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how you become a working musician. I don't think you could be working well, know, without the pay court. That's how musicians used to be, you see. Right. At some point in time, you had way more musicians and you had gigs. And so most of at some, and the older cats didn't call, when they called me for a gig, they called me for a gig. But at some point in time, the, 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 the conversation changed. When somebody called you for a gig, the first thing they tell you, and I, I you know, is how much fun we gonna have, you understand? And then when they tell you- <laughs> I don't want to that question. No, they, 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 they <laughs> say that right away. Oh, we gonna have a lot of fun, you understand? <laughs> fun at home you understand <laughs> that's yeah. where i'd rather be yeah. <laughs> well I, you know i haven't been approached with that question yet but it does come up or that that statement does come up as people are telling me about the shows okay i i have heard it <laughs> so i can relate from here based on you know your based on your working career and you know the fact that you're able to give us these gems and tell us like what it was like starting out back then for you what advice would you have for touring musicians at this point in today's market because you still perform out you still have to travel like what should people be working towards at this point as professional musicians well that that would be very difficult for me to do because naturally my times change. We're living in a totally, totally, totally different world today. I couldn't, I wouldn't even think about advising someone to do, you know, what I did because I, mm -hmm. I took, first of all, I've been to ground zero. It, well, it, it depends if, 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 if you wanted anything that you want to do in life, it's just not in music or whatever. Everything starts here and you have to have a plan. You have to have a vision and you have to have determination and you have to be really serious about what you're doing, but you can't, you have to, you have to be not only into what's in your head but you have to be conscious of reality if 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 you want you know you want to be a musician and and nobody's calling you to work 
well, that's that that may not work very well. You see, you have to you have to have some signs of the fact that this is this is your path. It's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, and some people know that. And uh, but you you when the, the when the hard times come, it's I, I've not on not only have I been through hard times, I've had seven horns stolen. Every time I go back to New York, they steal my horn. When I came out of the army in nineteen uh, late nineteen sixty seven. My tenor and alto out of the Harlem Y. When I went back to New York and Bill Mobley was with me when we, and he, you know, he's going mm -hmm. to check out New York. Out of the trunk of my car, my tenor, alto, flute, clarinet, piccolo, all in one shot. So oh, it's, like, it's like, okay, you want, you, 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 <laughs> you want, you really want to do this? In other mm -hmm. words, if you if you can if you can go through the hard times and and if you are still determined after getting your butt kicked, then it may be for you. But if you can't stand no butt kicking, you know you may you better become a lumberjack or a plumber or something. But even that, but even no nose field, nothing is guaranteed. <laughs> Leon I'm, still, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what am I going. I still want to work now. You understand? And I'm not, the only thing missing from my life now is the element of desperation. Because when you're desperate, you will find something to do. Unfortunately, I don't have any desperation anymore. So, so my phone is not ringing. But I, I'm not mad because I, how many people do you know had 64 good years? You understand? So. And many more, we hope, because, oh my gosh, this is an exquisite project and it's just it just does go to show i mean if you made this during lockdown then that definitely showed the desire i actually made my last project or the, the project before last during yeah. lockdown and it's just like we all were searching for a creative outlet of some right. sort <laughs> we, right. and even the artwork on that that album that's your son's piece correct on the cover of um, oh, yeah. my, well, my son, who's I, my, I had my son do that because he, 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 he's an artist who doesn't, you know, he's sort of survival has taken him away from his art, and he really has no interest or no, you know, he doesn't do much because he, and he's got children and he's scuffed to trying to make it, and so I want, I want to encourage him because that's. That's what makes you, if, if you're an artist, that's what makes you feel good. You understand? Even if you don't do it professionally, if you have something that it is that's within you, mm -hmm. you have to you have to act upon that. And again, you don't have to be a professional, but anything, because life, to be a complete person, my, my, I, I can unequivocally say that my livelihood has been music for all of these years, but it finally dawned upon me that my passion is really the study of human behavior and human growth and development. That's really what floats my boat. I like studying, looking at people, learning about people. And as you learn about other people, you got to, and you learn about yourself. I'm 77 and trying to figure out what I'm gonna be when I grow up, you understand? So that, right. Yeah. So when you when when you look at your career and you look at 
the types of things and obstacles that you overcame to just try to pursue what you wanted to do, which is even just if it be an album, a project or working with somebody, you know, of all these things and that, I guess that desire to just really try to create what it, what advice could you give? Or I would, I don't know, just what thoughts do you have on the artist need to create and the artist need to create and overcome circumstances? Cause obviously to do this for 64 years, there has to be a burning passion of some sort. It's got to, and sometimes that may ebb and flow. Like, so how did you deal with that? Well, as I said, desperation is the greatest motivator that you can have. If you got to pay your bills and you got to buy some food, you're going to figure out some way to do it or else you're going to walk around with your hand out. You understand? You can look for, but there's only three kinds of people, givers, takers, and users. You understand? But, you know, I'm not necessarily a guy walking around, you know, with my hand out asking, man, can I borrow $3 or so? That's just not by nature because I didn't come from that kind of environment. And it's just, you know, and not, not, and I'm nothing wrong with somebody that that's their way, but I, the desperation and as I've mentioned before, the inner voice. The inner voice has spoke to me many, many, many times. You understand, and it's and especially and so when when you're when you are in a state of desperation, you know the answer is out there for you. But you have you have you can't panic, and you have to wait for the voice to tell you your next move. As I, I told you with Miles, the voice said, "You got to get with a giant." And when I got with the giant, it was it wasn't it wasn't. It, uh, again, a, a story. I got to New York, back to New York, and I'm mm -hmm. trying to get reestablished. And so I played a job with some people that I knew before. And I'm asking, you know, anybody looking for a saxophone player? You know, anybody looking? And so this one friend of mine named Harold Osley, he called me the next day. He said, man, I thought of something last night, man. He said, you know, they're looking for somebody that, that plays a little flute. I started playing flute in the army. And so he said, so he gave me a number to call about somebody that was looking for a saxophone player that played some flute. So I called and back in those days, I left a message with the guy's secretary and his the guy's name was Jimmy Boyd. He was George Benson's business partner, but I didn't know that at the time. So I left a message for this guy. I said, my name is Bill Easley and Harold Osley told me to call you and so and so. And I didn't think anything more about it. I went on to my next phone call. Later on that day, I'm walking down 52nd Street and I pass this guy on the street and I carry in my horns and being a country boy, I speak to everybody. Hey, man. I just, hey, brother, brother. And he said, hey, man, you play saxophone? Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, man. So we started. Yeah, do you play flute? I said, yeah. And yeah, what's your name? I said, Bill Easley. He said, what? You left a message for me today. I see, there's eight <laughs> people in that town. You understand? Mm -hmm. Eight And that's who I ran into on that day. And that ended up. You know, at the time, George was going to, they were going to be adding another saxophone because they needed somebody to play a little flute. And I had just started, but I played it. So they had a little, at the, they were at the Vanguard, they had like a little audition. And so me and about five or six other cats show up. And I just happened to play a little bit more flute than they did. So I was the chosen, I was one that they were going to add to the band. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, Ronnie Kuba 
was in the band and make a long story short, I became, you know, I became the, the, the fourth member of the band, you see. And so I, and that was two years and we did festivals with with Ellington and with, I got to see Miles again. I was on concert to, at the Hampton Jazz <laughs> Festival. There's Miles, you know, there's, there's Monk. There's all these people that I got to see, you know, and I, I was right on the mountaintop. And again, I'm 20, 21 years. I turned 22 in January. I remember George Bensing t- turning 25. We're on the road, okay. his birthday, and me and Lonnie Smith went in and bought him a birthday card. And so we all those things are is like they they happened yesterday. And when I talked to George, we he remembers all the details just like I, you know. So again, the inner voice, it's about destiny. It's about being determined, determined. And, and you are obviously just in the right place to be able to receive those types of uh, gigs as well. So from there, let's fast forward from Memphis and let's talk about, so after you're playing with Isaac Hayes, and by, by the way, were you playing like in his, uh, with that, put you in his watch stacks era or what era of, of yeah, Isaac? We did watch stacks. We did, you know, I right after he won the Academy award for, for um, shaft, you see, because Anzi horn, as I mentioned, because Isaac was hot, man. And when we traveled, we'd had full string orchestras, but Anzi horns passion was the big band, you know, the regular 16 piece big band concept. And so Anzi after shaft, Anzi Horn wanted to add a full saxophone section because he figured when Isaac cooled off a little bit, you know, he wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily have that full orchestra, but he really, his passion, and he would, at that time, Anzi Horn was, 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 he knew he was sick. He knew that he, he didn't have much more time on the planet. And, but he, that, so when he hired the saxophone section, it was me, Tommy Lee Williams, Emerson Abel, and Floyd Newman. And then there was another guy named Calvin Bennett from California. But that was the set, five saxophones. And so I, Anzi Horn, would write some saxophones, you know, some little supplements to things that were already recorded. Say, for instance, from the theme of Shaft, Bumpy's Blues. Anzi Horn wrote a saxophone solely for these five saxophones. And when we, you know, that went in the overture, when the saxophone section played that solely that Anzi Horn had written, the whole string section would stomp their feet. In other words, it was it was just exquisite. And Anzi Horn would write for, he, he didn't even use a piano. He didn't use a score. He'd sit down and write out the parts. He was a, a literally a one of the very few absolute geniuses that I've been around, just like Phineas Newborn Jr. was a genius. You understand? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, but but that Isaac, that that was again, it's just tremendous, tremendous memories and tremendous life lessons. Definitely. And I'm thinking, so around that time period, you're there playing with Isaac and that phenomenal band what happens to you next in life what make what creates okay. next the next All right. 
okay, you got to you got to realize. See, they went through periods where Isaac would be off out making a movie or something like that, you know. So when we were off for long periods of time, mm-hmm. you know, and then stacks folded. You understand? Because I used I would, had been not only working with Isaac, but I'd been mm-hmm. making all the record dates at stacks. Plus Willie Mitchell. Willie Mitchell embraced me and brought me in records with Al Green and all of mm-hmm. that. So I'm busy, you know, in the studios and and and. But when Isaac wasn't, but stacks folded. Wow. Uh, think the bottom dropped out in Memphis. You understand? So. I kind of backslid back to ground and went back to the, the Chitlin circuit, working in the alleys without a tune pianos. So I was ready to give it up. And the, oh, this would have been when about sixty. Would this have been about sixty-eight, sixty, a little later, mid seventies? No, no, I didn't. I, I was only in Memphis in the seventies. But okay. what happened then? Right after Duke Ellington died. Mm-hmm. The Duke Ellington, right as soon as right after he died, and the, the Duke Ellington band came to Memphis, and the guy that I mentioned before, Lee Stone, was was running uh, the, at working at the Peabody, you know, in terms of beverage, and he was sort of had so Mercer, mm-hmm. they were there for oh four or five days, and at that time. Lee Stone says to Mercer, he says, is there anything that you can do? They they needed a clarinet player because all of du- the clarinet is very important part in Ellington music. Actually, Jimmy Hamilton had recommended me for his chair in the Ellington band way before I came to Memphis and, wow. and he had retired, you see, but the Ellington band came through Memphis. And they and and Stanley Dance had told Mercer, man, you got in order to keep the band sound, you got to find a clarinet player. You understand? So so my and and I get the call and I go that they're playing at having a rehearsal, and so I brought my clarinet. And by then I'm man, you, it's really really exciting. And so mm-hmm. I end up going out with the Ellington band right away. And so which. And and he, Mercer liked me very much because what I brought to the table. Plus, I re- I brought him Mulgrew Miller. You understand? They needed a piano player, and I brought Mulgrew Miller into the band. And Mulgrew stayed in the band for about seven years and became Mulgrew Miller. You understand? I did not know that. I did not know that you created that that yeah. bridge Mulgrew, to Mulgrew. Mulgrew. That's amazing. Yeah, I brought I brought Mulgrew because uh, again and Mul again I I could. I could tangent into 400 stories just about <laughs> but I think so many amazing yeah. so many amazing musicians and it's just like you know I have questions about each and every one of them <laughs> obviously well, let me get the duct tape. One second. <laughs> <laughs> I got some duct tape in my drawer about each and every one of these musicians. <laughs> But definitely interesting to see, you know, your connection to Oregon and the Memphis Piano Convention, like, you know, how how you were there and how, you know, that connection between you guys. Um, so were you there in the time of um, Fred Ford, Honeymoon Garden making, sure, you know? Sure, absolutely. So you got to play with those guys. I really enjoyed seeing them. Hey, man, listen, there's, the no, way, there's no way how I can explain memphis embraced me 
from from the day that I Memphis put its arms around me from the mm -hmm. moment that I got there. And mm -hmm. so <clears throat> because I, I had no I, I knew there was some music going on there. And at the time, <coughs> well, you know, uh, I, I had been, I've lived in Pittsburgh for a couple of years. And when I left there, again, this, I'll leave out details. But when <laughs> I left Pittsburgh, I, I had a, 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 I went right to Memphis, Tennessee, but I didn't, I, I was prepared to wash dishes. I was prepared to do whatever I had to do to, to you know, to survive. Mm -hmm. But as I said, I got there on Tuesday by Friday, I'm working seven nights a week, you see. So, now I won't forgive myself if I don't if I don't at least get um at least get some backstory on you working with Ruth Brown because I'm I've been listening to a lot of Ruth Brown. Today is actually uh Dinah Washington's birthday and we've you know we're talking earlier about you know how longevity and careers are just they don't always line up and especially in the music industry and learning that you know Donna has you know passed at 37 we had so many stellar stars you know at that time who just simply didn't live to old age yeah. but you got to work with Ruth Brown who has such she's one of the most unique figures in rhythm and blues and blues you know history is a, a woman doing that so how did you come to meet her and, and play with her Okay, with Ruth Brown, how that came about, there was a there was a broad a show called Black and Blue, and it lay it, it, a few years later it went to Broadway. We stayed a couple years on Broadway, and it was a all star band. I won't go, but Ruth Brown they, before the show came to New York, they were the show was in Paris, and they'd been in Paris for a year or so, you know, I mean, a long, long period of time they'd been in Paris. So the last few months of the show in Paris, there was some little conflicts going on within the saxophone section. So the guy who actually uh, was sort of the musical director of not well, the band put the band together, the name was Rudy Stevenson, and he had been the contractor on sophisticated ladies, which precedes that because sophisticated ladies right. is what inspired me to go back to New York. Cause when I left the Ellington band, Mercer Ellington told me I had an open chair in the Ellington band. And so when they went to, when their show was coming to Broadway, I said, and Memphis things that, you know, things that were a little slow and that's so, and by then I'm like 34 years old and I'd been going to went back to school at Memphis State, and I was going to become a school teacher or something. But the voice in my head said, "No, go back to New York." And and sophisticated ladies, the Broadway show with Gregory Hines, that sort of gave me motivation to go back to New York. But the contract of that show, and some years later, Black and Blue, and they were in Paris. So that's when I met Ruth Brown in Paris, and we'd hang out and go to dinner afterwards, and so and so. So. Once we went to, we did the Broadway show, but at the same time, she was still doing other things and her career was picking up as, a, you know, doing clubs and things like that. So mm -hmm. we, became, we would just, we just became great, great, great friends, great, great mm -hmm. friends. And I've worked with her 
uh, for many years, oh, good 20 years. And it was just, you know, you, you, I could write a dissertation about her because she, she, Ruth Brown, back in the day, she, Atlantic Records, I'm talking about before Ray Charles and so on, so on. Right. they used to call Atlantic Records the house that Ruth built. You understand? Because, mm -hmm. because her, him, mommy, treat your daughter, mm -hmm. me, those were big, 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 big. You see, so that was her early career. And then I, I don't want to go into too many personal details of maybe what happened with her career because everybody has ups and downs and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. So that's a whole dissertation. But as far as my personal relationship with her, she, she's of all the people that I've worked with, I miss her the most because she made everybody around her feel important. And when if people would come up to her, you know, hey, Ruth, remember I saw you in 1952 in Chicago? Oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. We went to dinner and Susie Jones was there and so and so. She would, she would, she would go. She remembered everybody, you understand? And her birthday was January 12th, and mine is the 13th, you see? And then and Grady Tate was the 14th, you understand? So, so. Okay, you have the birthday buddies. Yes. <laughs> You know, for a, I, 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 if I, I, I could, if I just go on just about her alone, because she was just such a beautiful, warm spirit, and just such a, such a, such a great, and and she, she, her Bobby, Bobby Short. I've worked with Bobby Short. Those mm -hmm. were great behind certain people can do the exact same thing over and over but each time they do it it feels like the first time that they've ever done it see everybody yeah. can do that she can right. do, say the same thing bobby short i went to carlisle bobby short word for word he would say the same thing and i'm sitting there in the band so i just heard this on the last show but since you got a new audience it felt brand new every time he did it and that's how ruth was you see yeah vocal yeah. master yeah definitely the vocal master so you are you've technically not ever not been on the road since you started playing in the 64 oh, yeah, years. I have been on the road. I've been on the road a whole bunch, busting trucks, one-nighters, you name it. Been on the road. Oh, <laughs> this much we know. And don't and you started working with dancers as well. Well, with so, Broadway shows, I did like 10 Broadway shows, and most of them were black shows, you understand? So gotcha. What's yes. it like working on Broadway? get paid every week, you get benefits, you get, I, I, I got, in other words, I started collecting the pension when I was 58, you see. When I was 58, I started, not too many jazz musicians, you know, get a pension. But right. I started collecting my pension at 58. Sonny Stitt was dead at 58, you understand? Mm -hmm. I'm 77 now, my pension is supposed to be good till I'm 104. So when I'm 104, I'll have to go back to work full time, you understand? So. <laughs> That's why I practice every day. It'll be ready for you. Oh, I practice <laughs> every day. So that's just... There's Leon. Leon, you have anything you want to ask? Well, I did. Uh, uh, um, did you ever teach? Did you ever, you know, take some time? Yeah, to... I, 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 informally. But say, for instance, I live in my, when I moved to Durham, 
because I believe it or not, I have a lot of information, a lot of experience that I'm chopping at the bit to share. It, no, you, nobody, they don't teach in jazz school what I know. So I was, I'm really always been very much interested in teaching and being, and because I can, I have, I've had a few private students over the year and that's it. I'm not, a, I don't call myself a teacher because that's a, that's a whole nother, another job description. I think I can teach. I think I have information. I live in Durham, Tennessee, Durham, Durham, North Carolina. The academics avoid me like the plague. You understand? Mm. Mm-hmm. They and I, I and I really wanted. Uh, uh, maybe I talk too much. I don't know. I would really love to be a part of the community, but they really, uh, they they they, for whatever reason. And I, I you know, and and I could say, okay, I probably talk too much, or maybe I know too much, or whatever. I could put it on me, but it could also possibly be that sometimes, you know, people are intimidated because they haven't been where I've been. So it could be, I don't, I'm not saying for sure, but I, all I know is I, and I've given, I no longer have any interest in really, really being a part of the community. I like the weather here. I have a great, great lifestyle. I have a wife that calls me King William just for taking out the garbage. You understand? <laughs> so I'm nobody, ain't nobody <laughs> King William. I take out the garbage on Wednesday evening. I bring the cans back Thursday. Oh, thank you, King William. You, <laughs> you earned it, Bill. Hey, I'm the best garbage man on this or any other planet. You understand? <laughs> great pride in it. You understand? Recycle. What's garbage? What is recycled? I clean the, the, the milk cans and all that. The, the, even the, the trash collector loves me. <laughs> Now, did you uh, have anything in your career that you wanted to do that you didn't get a chance to do? Uh, right now, I want to be working. I want to be working. Right now, I do I do very little, and I, I will get in my – it's not because my whole career, it, it's I have been a mercenary. In other words, I, I did it to get paid. You understand? Right. So it's not so much. I just still love to play and I love to, to make people feel, you see. But I don't do it very much. And since I used to be working all the time. So when you're not working all the time, when you do get a gig, you have a certain amount of anxiety. And you oh, what am I doing? I, I don't need to do this. What am I doing this for? You know, sure. I went out and Lewis Nash invited me to come out and play at his club out there in Phoenix. And I'm like, uh, it was like a tribute to Jackette. And it's like, why am I? But then, but then I re it worked and the people liked me and I was able to do my thing. And it was like, it's like that old time religion. You understand? It's like, it comes back. like a hustler that hadn't been in church in a long time. You understand? <laughs> but when you do it, and especially if you, because I have nightmares. I have nightmares of being totally, totally, totally incompetent and in, mm. you know, and I, and they're so real that when right. I wake up, in other words, I can't even find the music or I can't even put my horn together in the dreams. And then when I wake up, it takes me about noon to recover because the, the dream is so real. But most of the time, I'm not saying all the time, there are times when I've gone to New York, I went to New York for four nights or whatever. And it took me, it took me until the fourth or fifth night 
to be where I should have been on the first night, you know, so I was very hard on myself. And but that that's a whole, you know, I have to work on that. In other words, because yeah, it's things are different, and you're not doing but when you when it when it come time to hit, you better hit. That's a real life thing, you know, like, you know, as a musician, and especially in the culture of musicians who do improvised music, like there's definitely that aspect of us is like, am I spending enough time with the music and the instrument and all the time that we know it takes to work on the craft and be warm and be ready to say what we want to say? It can definitely do a number on you. Oh, wow. It's the relief to kind of hear something that you ever actually get rid of in the sense that like it's always gonna be just part of humanity. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> I said, what are you I look at myself, I say, you dummy, you're 77 years old. You haven't figured it out yet, you understand? But no, I haven't. Right, well, that, that makes me feel a little bit better. Maybe I should take it easy, because you know. <laughs> we can all we can all show ourselves some grace when it comes to oh, yeah. that. Usually, we're we're our toughest critics, you know. Well, it's, and... it's like that. This is this is the, the, I say to my now I say you know what every every day the goal is just to be better than you were yesterday. And I, I'm not just talking about I you know when I think about life I I don't think about just jazz musicians or musicians that goes across the board. We're all people. A lot of times musicians or artists think they're you know of a special group or just like somebody who belongs to this sorority or that sorority. They sort of you know sort of put themselves on a but no we're all people. The one and we're all connected. You see we're all connected, and we all have our our faults and our strong points so no but but people you know the blues the blues developed out of our culture now the, i say the blues was a positive reaction to an adverse condition but there's a big difference in playing the blues and crying the blues you understand the blue the crying the blues don't get you nothing but so we got a whole lot of entertainers and artists and things. Oh, you know, we sort of dwell on, uh, you know, feeling sorry for ourselves, and it don't get you anywhere. Absolutely, it and that's that's absolutely what you struggle with as far as uh, getting your message across, whatever genre. So in closing, now that we know we got we've got your top things that you would give for advice to the upcoming musician or the musician out here maybe thinking about gigging you saying it's a free for all things have changed <laughs> do what's adequate for you to get paid and work towards that but now as we shut this down i want to think musically for you if you are on a desert island right now what would be the music you need to take with you or would you need to take music with you at all because a lot of people say you know, at different points in their career, they're not even listening to it. So what are you listening to and what do you need to have? I, I, I don't listen as much as I did when I was young because in fact, music is going on in my head all the time. You understand? In other words, I'm practicing in my head. I'm, you know, I'm I, sometimes I get on finale on the computer and I just play notes in because I, I, most of I'm a better reader 
than I was through all of the years of my career. And I played in all these big wow. bands. I played Broadway shows. I, I was always, I was never a great reader. I was a speller and I could hear faster than I could read. But my yeah. reading is actually better now than it was during my busy days playing with all the bands and Broadway shows and things. Just because I'm working on it. I'm working on it and I'm conscious of it. And certain things, certain uh Lights have gone on on my head because when you look at a rhythm, it's a, it's a, one plus one equals two. You understand? And right. you cut this in half, and then you know it's and I and I said, now how come I didn't understand this fifty years ago? <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Leah. You have anything else? Already. No. It's only been ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I was like, we. We still have so much we could even cover oh, even with this, but it's just, oh my gosh, you have such a rich history. I started writing a book, oh, years ago, <laughs> and I wrote a hundred, and the name of the book is Music Lessons, you see, and it's all chronological going from my childhood up to about 1983. Oh, wow. But then I, but then I, I stopped because I said, well, everybody's got a story, you understand? So if I were to continue it, say from 1983 up till now, I wouldn't be able to put it in any chronological order because so much has happened that I don't know the, I don't know what happened when, I don't even know what decade it was in. You understand? So it's, it's, it's a lot of material. So I don't, I don't know, I'm not chomping at the bit to finish my book, but I, I like to write and, and there is a lot of information that I'd like to share, but Right now, I'm trying to figure out where can I get me a gig somewhere. You understand it? For, uh, <laughs> Probably I... anywhere you want, Bill. Huh? <laughs> Probably anywhere you want to no, get no, a gig. No, no, that's Somebody sees this, they're going to be like, not... oh, he's no. ready to go to work. No, I, I, wish, <laughs> I wish that were true. I, I, on my Facebook page, I put, my, I said, have horns will travel. And I mean that. I, tra I went a couple of months, uh, I drove to New York. And then the I, paladin had another, reference. I had another gig in <laughs> and so when I when I go out of town, I got to pay my hotel bills and gas. So I went mm -hmm. to New York and to, to Connecticut and I brought home six dollars. You understand? Last week I went last week I went to Detroit and you know, just to play with, with James Carter, a benefit of a friend of mine, but I had the mm -hmm. hotel bill cost me 300 and some dollars. Luckily I drive a hybrid car, you understand? But I still love to play and I'm willing to go anywhere. And I want, I wish I had somebody that would just send me to wherever and let me play with the local cats who's ever there, because that's one thing that I can do. I can play with anybody because I played from the worst to the absolute best musicians on the planet. You know and I know how to make chicken soup out of chicken something else, you understand? And I enjoy that. I don't, I'm not necessarily enamored by the great virtuoso. I like great, I like nice people. I'd rather play with some nice people than the, than some of the, you know, cats that are full of themselves. Sure. Well, I feel like after a podcast like this, this is a fantastic reference for you. I feel okay. like people will, call will definitely call you Bill. Call me. I, I'm not cheap, but I'm reasonable. You understand? <laughs> it, ain't, it ain't all about money. My my uncle, my uncle, and my father used to talk about. My uncle would say, "He said, you know, 
money is the root of all evil. My father said, yeah, but you show me a man with no money, I'll show you a bum, you understand? <laughs> and my uncle said, say, you know, the meat shall inherit the earth. My father said, yeah, but it don't say what shape it's going to be in when they get it, you see. So <laughs> I've known all this stuff since I was a little boy. <laughs> All right, that's it. Thank you so much. So much. Maybe we could do this over with the duct tape. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I enjoy. What time is it? Have a good evening, all of you. It was definitely a pleasure. Listen to the voice in your head. All right. Goodbye. There will be a part two. I promise say the same thing I said today. I promised Ronnie <laughs> that he could do this, but it, it, things didn't work out on this one, so he's going to do part two. I know Ronnie wants to, to talk to him. So you I said, I know Ronnie wants to talk to oh, you. Yeah. Well, he, we, did a, we, we did a record together with with, uh, with Sir Roland Anna, you understand? Oh, wow. And Sir, Sir Roland, <laughs> and one quick story about Sir Roland Anna. He, another brilliant mind, you know. So one time we were, he's writing this music for a puppet show. And he's been, he talked about me to, for months and months about this music he's writing for this puppet show. And the name of the show was called Maya the Bee. It was about this, this bee, you know, female bee. So he talked about it. And so he, he hired me for the date. And he wanted to bring all these horns, your flute, your piccolo, and your soprano, and so on and so on. So I figured he's writing parts. But when I get to the studio, he's just got some lead sheets. And, and, so he would describe to me what the scene is about. So he figures that would let me know what to play. So now, Bill, and the first tune was called Flying Home, but not, not Illinois, that's just the name of the tune. So he mm-hmm. said, now, Bill, now what this is about, it's this young female bumblebee. And the bumblebee runs away from home and it ends up living with a wasp colony. And it overhears a conversation that the wasps are going to attack the bumblebees. So this bumblebee is flying home to tell the other bumblebees, you know, and and he's so serious. And I'm listening like, oh, yeah, okay, I know exactly what to play for that, you know. because I don't want to make them, I don't want to interrupt them. So, so, and I kept my abuse, I put the duct tape on my mouth, I kept my mouth shut. So right before we got ready to record, I said, I said, Sir Roland, how old is this bumblebee? You know, so Roland said, I thought he would laugh. He said, he said, now the bumblebee's three years old, but keep in mind, that's like uh, 16 years in human life. In other words, it's an adolescent. <laughs> you understand? So I said, okay. And we did about 21 songs like that. Oh, <laughs> man. That's awesome. That's enough. But Ronnie and I did a, a Gershwin record with him. That that was really, really a great experience, you know. So there's so many. I could I could spend four hours talking about Roland Hand or anybody. You understand? We'll get you back for sure. All right, <laughs> turn me up. Turn turn it off. Pull the plug. I know. All right. Thank you. City Jazz Sessions is brought to you by St. Louis City Jazz, a 501c3 company dedicated to music education and appreciation. 
The CEO is MagicMan50. And for more ways to connect with City Jazz Sessions, visit cityjazzsessions.wixsite.com slash St. Louis. The City Jazz Sessions team includes host, content director, and guest coordinator, jazz great Ronnie Barrage. Follow Ronnie at ronniebarrage.biz. Host, website designer, graphic artist, content director, and guest coordinator, singing sensation Leica. Discover more about Leica at leikamusic.com. Additional production services are provided by Lion's Den Productions. Go to thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home. Please like, share, comment, and subscribe for more great content.